She thumps a cane and drinks champagne She's formidable and judgmental But we can guarantee That she's a quintessential Lady D But recognizes great potential What would Danbury do? Welcome to What Would Danbury Do? Your guide to Julia Quinn's Bridgerton series from A to V. Strap in for the most iconic use of bees as a plot device since the 1991 film My Girl, because this episode we're talking about The Viscount Who Loved Me, book two in the Bridgerton series. Don't forget you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at BridgertonPod, and we'd love for you to tweet us using the hashtag WWDDPod. It's a great way to help other people find the show. In the meantime, can we look at this step back again? Like it's something else. It is. That is incredible. That's it has swans. Yeah. Oh my god. Like this is one of the this is a first edition. Cause I used to buy them. So yeah. Oh, dang. Hi, I'm Rudy. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm Adele. Today we're talking about The Viscount Who Loved Me by Julia Quinn and published in 2000 by Avon Books. The dedication to Paul reads, and also for Paul, even though he's allergic to musicals, boo Paul. That's not actually in the dedication, the boo part, that's me editorialising, but I stand by it. It's the second book in the series and follows the Bridgerton's family patriarch and resident apiophobe, Lord Bridgerton, Anthony to his friends and family as well as Kate Sheffield, the first of her name, mother of disobedient corgis, and mallet of death wielder. It's an enemies-to-lovers story that begins in 1814, when Anthony decides he needs to marry and procreate to continue the Bridgertons, as though we're in danger of running out of them anytime soon, and chooses Kate's charming younger sister Edwina to be his bride. Um, I actually wanted to ask how often you practice saying apiophobe out loud before you actually read the introduction, because <laughs> I don't think that's a book or a word I've ever heard said out loud before. I thought it was a typo. <laughs> <laughs> um, I haven't practiced it out loud. I also have not double checked the pronunciation. I think what's really curious to me in reading this book is you really get a sense of of the Bridgerton's as a sibling group much better than you do in the first book, but they understand Anthony's behavior so well, they can predict it. You see that with Colin sort of shoving him towards Kate because he knows there's going to be fireworks, but I don't know how much they've actually thought about why he is so predictable. They've just really um, benefited from his stability for a really long time, but I don't really know how much they actually know him. I do love the conversation he has with Kate about being the eldest sibling. I think that's after the the storm recovery and they're talking about the responsibility of it and that's a really sort of connective moment because I guess he doesn't really get to talk to anyone about that. You know, all the way through his whole, everything that he does is essentially about the lineage and his responsibilities and you know, his plans, and he's got it all sort of ordered out. And I think maybe that's the first moment when we actually see Anthony, as opposed to, you know, Vi- you know Viscount. Crap, which, what Viscount is he? Bridgerton. 
Is it a? Is it the? Yeah. Is his name Anthony Bridgerton, Viscount Bridgerton? I'm That's fairly sure. I tried um, to look this up because I was really like I was so confused about how it. I was like, surely that there's a there's another name. Couldn't find yeah, it one. It doesn't normally it doesn't normally work that way. Anyway, whatever. Yeah. Lord Bridgerton, Viscount Bridgerton, <laughs> Anthony Bridgerton. Um, Bridgerton, you know, so, cute. Yeah. <laughs> For, you know, we're so he's so busy being the Viscount that he never gets to be Anthony. And I think in that moment, he actually gets to be Anthony. And to be able to share that with somebody, I think it was probably a seminal moment in his life as well, in that he hasn't ever been able to connect with anybody or to even just expose that he does have worries and doubts and, and you know, that he does feel the responsibility, even though he seems to take it on without any real burden. Well, he always makes the right call, right? Like, even though he's maintained a boundary in leaving the house, but he still has to study there because it makes sense because he's close to them all. The big thing that occurred to me reading the start of this book for the third time in my life is, like, he's living up to the legacy of someone who is too perfect to live. Edwin died before Anthony was old enough to see his father as a person, yeah, you know, because yeah. we think our parents are perfect until we're teenagers, but most people he don't get sent school. away to school. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you get to see your parents as people and watch them, you know, and fight with them and rub up against them when you're a teenager. And Anthony just sort of never had that experience and he never really got to know his dad as an adult. So yeah, I think Adele, you're quite right. Edmund is a paragon of virtue at all times because Anthony never really knew him. I, I mean, I don't know how much they go into this because I, I have to reread them again. But like, he is is Hyacinth and, and Gregory's dad for all intents Effectively, and yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I think Gregory and- was four when their father died and Hyacinth was, Violet was still pregnant. Well, if Edmund hadn't died, then Anthony would never have compromised Kate and they wouldn't have gotten married. Yes. Can we, can we talk about that compromising scene? <laughs> I think we need to talk about the fact that Anthony is such a boob man. Like, <laughs> I went through at one point and, like, the number of times that he pulls down the top of her dress to, like, get at her boobs. Oh, it's, there's it's a, a lot, lot, right? It's a lot. A yes. lot. The man clearly knows what he likes and you know he zeroes in on that part also and I don't really know like I'm not personally I don't go in for the regency role play but surely if you're like pulling the sleeves down over your shoulders it sort of like leaves her with like t-rex arms like Kate this so much this t-rex arms I'm sure of it but I mean imagine because imagine the court like corsets push everything together and up right so I imagine like they don't have to pull down as far as you might expect but, but yeah it was the t-rex enough. arms that really got to me I'm like she's just sort of sitting there with her arms just sort of flailing in front of her and you know while he's <laughs> going to town on her boobs <laughs> and it happens so often like so often in the course of the book so she gets stung by a bee and then he tries to suck the venom out and he's so so worried about that she's going to die that he does that not realizing three ladies are approaching 
But as soon as they approach, it's like he forgets the beastie even ever existed and it's never a thing and he never <laughs> thinks about why he was so distressed that Kate might die. There's nothing there. Like, it's just... <laughs> I didn't notice he goes from like his mortal fear to like fine we'll get married like from yeah. that complete left right hand like, I should feel a bit like pissed about this but yeah I'm okay <laughs> that's literally one of the paragraphs <laughs> but like that's it's not a say. it's not a sensual thing like it's I just but keep I thinking about this and being like I, I know that no one really sort of no one really thought that he was compromising her but also, like, it just is such a... <laughs> and it, I mean, because it the scene doesn't read essential, and I think that at several points they point out that the bee sting was, like, just below her collarbone, not, you know, not very low. But even, like, even his mom is like, sorry, bud, I totally get where you're coming from here, but the fact is you had your mouth... I suppose, like, he had his mouth on her in general, which is just yeah. enough regardless of where that mouth was in terms of like the geography of her chest. But I mean, he's a dick quite a lot. Like the key drop. The key? That is a scene that I go back and reread a lot because it is so exquisitely painful. Everything about it is fucked up. And I just, oh God, I love it. Like I don't, I don't know why, but like it just... Sometimes I will be like going about my life and I'll be like, oh, remember the time that Anthony threw the key at Kate and he did it deliberately so that it would fall on the floor. And then he sees her realize that that's what's happened. And then she like refuses to bend down and pick it up for ages. And they just stare at each other. And then she does pick it up and she's so angry and he's so remorseful, but he also knows he can't say anything to her because he's meant to hate her and she's meant to hate him because he's going to marry her sister. I love it. I love that scene. There's a lot going on in that scene. <laughs> Every, like, everything is so heightened, even though it's like the smallest act. Like oh, everything is so heightened. And I love that it's from Anthony's point of view so that we get to sort of see, you know, his anger. And then the moment when he realizes that he's been a complete ass and the inner battle between, you know, wanting to not be that asshole, recognizing that he is the asshole, and also trying to keep up being the asshole in order to not be an asshole later on. He knows who he has to be and he knows who he is. Or actually, it's more he knows who people think he is and then he knows who he actually is. And those two personas don't necessarily connect. The son that Violet raised him to be is the one who feels remorse in that moment. The Viscount is who threw the key. Well, and I think he's got this vision in his head of what a Viscount is supposed to be. And well, and I suppose also the fact that he's going to die young, like he's so convinced he's going to die young that there's no space for softness, I guess, in him. Like he has, he has a list of responsibilities that he has to accomplish before he's going to die young. He knows he's going to die young. So he doesn't have any time to sort of develop empathy or, or even, just the time to be kind to people who are not going to help him reach his goals. If you think about it mathematically, he thinks he's going to die when Hyacinth is 20. So he's got that amount of time to get everything sorted before he dies. 
So, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like, it's just about the family. That's about it. And, of course, that's a huge, huge amount of responsibility. But I think... He's still a douche. Yeah. Yeah. In a lot of ways, he really, really is. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I um, mean, the way he declares he, he's going to get married. <laughs> I mean, that's one of my favorite Bridgerton moments in the book is, like, just imagining all these men spilling over their chairs and, like, just in complete aghast or, like, shocked. This is really farcical, this one, in terms yeah. of a lot of the stuff that happens. The bee sting, the key drop. And the description of Kate's mother's death. Yes. I mean, it's clearly a very emotional scene for Kate, and there's a lot tied up in that. But the woman, like, on her deathbed, suddenly jackknifing up and screaming at the top of her lungs, I'm like, this is... We took a left turn into Horrorville here. Well, also, like, Kate just having her storm breakdown. Yeah, like... I, I do think it's interesting that she and Anthony are effectively the same person. For a for a enemies to lovers, it would it makes more sense, or it's kind of more typical to have opposites. But like the tension with them is that they are too similar, and mm. so they really do not like each other at the start. Oh, I'm about to derail myself. Chasing Newton, chasing the corgi. <laughs> Fucking Jesus! <laughs> like I also just think. Oh, so Adele, last time you suggested we keep like a oh, so nose kind punch. of yes, nose punch count. I am currently keeping an Anthony gets dunked in a river count, and it's <laughs> we're up to three. By the end of this book, we're at three, and it's glorious because <laughs> he ends up in the Thames in the Duke and I, and then he gets oh wait, am I misremembering the Pall Mall? He gets. He no, has he to has get into to the go. serpentine to rescue yeah. Edwina, and then he, he considers going the after the pink ball in the like. I'm sure he does. I think he? he does actually go in after it eventually. We just he don't does. get it to goes, see it. It goes. It's like a, it's like a foot deep. Yeah, I remember. Reading that. But yeah, but sorry, I love but Kate. That. So when um, Kate knocks his ball into the river. Like, she's like, you would have done it. And he's just like, yeah. Like, <laughs> like I do like that, that sort of the their similar way of thinking does come up yeah. in nice moments like that where they're so hard on each other, but sometimes they do understand because it would be their reaction as well. Yeah. But just the, like, I won, I won, and him being like, you didn't win. You just knocked my ball into the water. She's like, I felt like I won for doing that, though. <laughs> it's like, Yeah. <laughs> Babe, you did. I love how spiky they are. And he, I mean, there's the moment she falls in love with him where he does this incredible, incredibly lovely thing in rescuing Penelope. I mean, that moment, like, I would fall in love with him even if he's a douchebag most of the time as well. <laughs> like, like, that is just so wonderful. But he said this line to her, and it was really romantic to me, but everyone else would be like, whatever. But he's like, your mean streak is one of the things I like best about you. And I was just like, that's so romantic. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to highlight that. Look, I love that line too. That's what I love. I love the repartee, and I love their sexual... The sexual (laughs) attention. Energy. (laughs) 
God, I just, I adore Kate because she's so utterly sensible and pragmatic, but it doesn't sort of go too far into coldness. And then she's also really funny. Like we touched on it, but when Kate and Edwina are invited to play Pall Mall, which is kind of like ye old croquet, the course is kind of a killer but Kate's sister Edwina is a little too kind to truly get in the spirit. But Kate's natural setting slash flirt setting seems to be Machiavellian. (laughs) So she gets very into it. And as soon as she realizes she doesn't have a hope of actually winning, she focuses on taking the cheap shot of knocking Anthony out of the comp. But um, God, she she breaks my heart every time she worries that when Anthony is kissing her or thinking about her, that he's thinking about her sister. And the part where I think I really changed my mind about him being a douche is the part where she was like, she actually asks him, or no, she stops because he says you're beautiful, and she like freezes. And yep. they're like, I think they're mid-coitus at they this point. They literally just, are, yeah. Yeah, she just freezes and he is like, what's going on? Like, you know, he stops for one thing. He stops, recognizes what's happening, stops, asks her what's going on. And she's like, you know, who are you thinking about? It's not me. I'm not beautiful. And then he he's like, I'm only going to say this once. You're perfect and beautiful and wonderful and now I'm going to go ahead and finish what we were doing when this all thing started. But one of the things about that scene, because Kate, I agree, like that, Mm. that's a scene that broke my heart. And like part of, there was, I definitely had a cheer moment and was like, how fucking revolutionary that he actually stops. Because we have so many heroes in other romance novels of that time that are like, if you want to stop, you better tell me now because once we get started, I'm not going to stop. And, like, no, he's literally, they're, like, real close to coming and then he says this thing and it throws her off and then he, like, he freezes. But (laughs) what killed it for me was his speech of I'm only going to say this once. I was like, you could say it more than once. (laughs) It's not not that dramatic, dude. Like... (laughs) It's the most maddening, beguiling, damnable thing. And I'm like, oh, Anthony, you're still a douche, but, you know, I'm going to change my mind. I love Kate because she loves Mary and Edwina so much. And it's just when she tells him, like, she's removing her objections to him pursuing Edwina and he's completely flummoxed because he's like, what, what? Like, and... And she's kind of heartbroken, but she wants to do the right thing for Edwina. And she, you know, she put her own feelings aside. Even though, like, Anthony's really had very little interest in Edwina at any point. Well, speaking of arrogant Anthony, like, he's like, who's the who's the diamond of the season? She'll do. <laughs> yeah, he okay. hasn't actually, like, seen her, met her, yeah. heard of her. <laughs> There's some well, things to does, think about here. He does ask if she she's intelligent or, like, oh, if yeah. she's... Tolerable intelligence wise. 
And I think it is a con that's like I had a discussion or someone I had a discussion with her about archaeology and she seemed like on the right track. No, no, no. It's not even it Colin is not even saying I had a discussion. He's like, I overheard her talking about mythology with somebody. <laughs> she seemed to be right. Imagine if Colin hadn't have eavesdropped. <laughs> They'd be sitting around being like, who like, is to tell? Her and be like, tell me what you know about Zeus. And she'd be like, um, okay. What level of mythology, like Greek mythology, like knowledge does she have to have? Fucking hell. I can just imagine like Anthony correcting pronunciation on, on like a mythological oh. being as well. Like, like, <laughs> oh he's yeah he's totally that guy oh yeah but there's this there's this description of like anthony thinking about what it is between him and kate when she's just told him she's withdrawing her objections and he goes it was that spark that damnable spark that never seemed to dim between them that awful prickle of awareness that burned every time she entered the room or took a breath or pointed a toe that sinking feeling that he could if he let himself love her. Oh, you have a heart inside all the shit. (laughs) (laughs) It's so nice because you do feel that every time they're together in a scene, there is that spark. Like Quinn did that particularly well. Like even Mm -hmm. if they're both being objectionable or one or the other, you do feel that strong push and pull. um, And it makes it really fun to read. Oh yeah. This like, crackles like it actually there yeah one of my favorite moments between them he's saying to her I thought you were supposed to be on your best behavior Kate looked around it doesn't count if there's no one to hear me right I can hear you you certainly don't count I can't think of anything that I want to particularly shit on right now, but there are other like enemies to lovers books that I've read where I've just been like, Mm-mm, no, I'm not here for it. Or that it has gone too far to the point where I'm not okay. For me personally, this kind of, it managed to walk that line of like, I don't even think enemies so much as adversaries. I think that's why it worked so well. Like they're not enemies. Um, Kate's just between Anthony and his goal. Oh, I, I feel and like they would describe themselves as enemies <laughs> in, the, in the beginning, at least. Yeah. But yet one of my favorite of their, like, of their, like, fight-ish moments is Walking Newton, Kate's Corgi. Um, I do think it's important to flag that it is, he's a Corgi named Newton because Kate would be really upset if we were to gloss over her dog of indeterminate breed. But like that dog is like the MVP. Like he's doing he's doing some some work. <laughs> With his little little fat body and little legs as he escapes mm-hmm. and goes running across like half of London. Um, we need to put up videos of corgis running on our socials because if people haven't seen <laughs> corgis running, they're so good. Like really, you've never known joy. <laughs> yeah. So between that and the Palmel scene, which I think like that's one of the few times that we, or it's the f- only time. 
in this book that we get to see Daphne and Simon again. So we like we do a revisit and check in on them and how happy they are together and stuff. But like And the Anthony still thinks Simon's a bit of a wanker for ending up with Daphne even though they're happy. <laughs> Can't let it go. Oh, actually, yeah, because like I do really love there's there's a point where Kate kind of says to Anthony, Well, would you let your sister marry someone like you? He's like, mm, my sister married Simon, the Duke of Hastings. And she's like, mm, but he's not, he's not an ass like you. He's like, well, maybe you don't know the Duke of Hastings properly. I want to go back to Paul Mall for a second because yes. I had a moment where I was, I wondered if there was um, an anachronism in it because pink is considered a girl's color now. But I'm reasonably sure it was considered a boy's color in the 1800s. This. The baby colors used to be swapped. It used to be blue for girls and pink for boys, right? I was really interested about that because I was fairly sure that that was true. And also mm. that, like, I mean, a lot is made of um, um, many of the other gentlemen at that point are wearing, like, they're, they're peacocking, like they're wearing bright colors mm -hmm. and kind of, I don't know how else to put it, but like, yeah. Whereas Anthony's very sort of, is it austered? Is that austere. Austere. Hey. <laughs> um, and he, he sticks to like black and white. He's too serious for colors. Well, according to Wikipedia, in the 19th century, England, pink ribbons and decorations were often worn by young boys. Um, so, mm. yep. So pink wouldn't have been a thing. Um, but I think that's, I mean, that's a modern sensibility thing. I don't know about, I mean, maybe I could be brought around to being super interested in somebody in like orange breeches and a purple coat. But right now, I think, you know, just stick with the black and white. It's okay. Do you mean like in 1814 or you mean like for right now? Well, I think because I'm reading it now. Oh, okay, I'm sure right, right. The ladies, I'm sure that the 1814 ladies went absolutely bananas for men in orange breeches and purple frock coats. But I am not that girl. Um, so it's probably a nod to, you know, to a contemporary audience who just doesn't get with the colourful on in their men's formal wear. Counterpoint Billy Porter on any red carpet ever. Oh, so I mean, like... yes, okay. But I mean, it took a long time for us to get Billy Porter. Like we've been waiting for Billy Porter for a long time. That's true. I just find this book like so joyful. Like there are so many laugh out loud moments. Um, Can I just point out the, so like he gets over the B thing without really thinking about it. Um, and then Kate's able to talk him out of the dying early thing really quickly as well. Like, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> like, it's he doesn't really have his conflicts, which were with him the whole time. He gets over once he just gets a bit of logic from someone who's not a family member. Like, I wonder if he's never really talked about it with anybody yeah, before. So maybe saying something out loud was just like, oh wow, this does sound a little bit not right. Stupid. Yeah, see, yeah. if he if he'd have actually spoken about this to any other person, he'd be over it by the time he was 19. I do find it 
odd, and please blame my bad memory if this is not true, that they don't really talk about Edmund as a family. Ever that I can recall, really. And yet it's hit a lot of them really, really hard. So they've they never this open communicative family don't seem to discuss Edmund much. At this point in time, we're also 18 years after his death, right? Yeah. So, I mean, he may come up from time to time, but he's probably not the same way that even two or three years after his death would have been. Yeah, true. Something that I found out kind of right before I did this reread was that initially Quinn wrote The Duke and I and then The Viscount Who Loved Me and right before The Duke and I was going to be published, she decided that Edmund has actually been dead for quite a number, like since Anthony was 18. And then she had mm-hmm. to go through, go back to The Duke and I, which originally had him only recently having died. She had to kind of remove any reference that said that it was kind of like just in the past couple of years. And it's now. So there's like... It was kind that would of make fascinating, it... like that it would be such a different experience if he's actually grown up with his father. Like, so how the hell do they not have a huge portrait of him that stares at them in the lobby, like of their? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe they do. Maybe that's where they got his their chestnut hair from. Yeah. <laughs> Should we take a moment and talk quickly about Edwina? Yes. Yes, please. Being a diamond of the first water, which I think is an expression we need to bring back into (laughs) regular use. It's just so emotive. It says everything you need to know. Although I really want to know where the first water came from. Like, what does a diamond (laughs) of the second water look like? But I just love that she... I love that it, that she's like, oh, yeah, of course he's in love with you. I could totally tell. That's why I was <laughs> never worried about him proposing to me because he was clearly going to propose to you, even though she's so innocent of the of how it all happened. Um, and I love that she tries to sit in on Mary and Kate's talk. So much. Oh, because I had my big, like, because I had such a rant about Violet's talk and, like, or lack of talk. Um in the Duke and I, I was so, I, I actually was really enjoying Mary's talk for Kate and also Edwina's attempt to get in on yeah. that. Like, <laughs> she's just like, it hasn't happened yet. So maybe if I just hang out in the room. <laughs> With a cup of warm milk. <laughs> Our mother will forget to send me out. It does make you wonder about Mary's first marriage, which was clearly oh. not happy. And that Kate's father married Mary, what, a couple of months after the death of Kate's mom? Yeah. That was, a, sounds like a love marriage. So it's, oh, I, like, it was... Mary might be the best stepmother in the history of literature because she's a damn good human being. She is. She really is. I love, I love the fact that she goes to Kate's mom's grave and just to tell her how Kate's turning out like I just that was just such a beautiful little throwaway scene that didn't have anything to do with anything it just told us so much about Mary and it was just so heartwarming 
And that she's never tried to get Kate to call her mum. And then there's that lovely like, mention of Kate saying, you are my mother in every way that matters. And I was just like, <laughs> that was so sweet. Oh, how dare they? I just think that there's there's something really lovely about like when we when we think about Edwina and you know that she is a diamond of the first water and she is everything that is perfect and good in the world and what a woman should be at all of 17 um but like I don't know about you I was a mess at I know I was like like I I don't know what to do with that but go hard like go on and then just like Kate being genuinely not jealous of her and like mm. the true affection that they have for each other because it's so easy to to have done some kind of like adversarial sister relationship mm. there or to like I, I mean Edwina's a little bit Mary Sue-ish and but I, I'm alright with that like I'm alright with her being kind of perfect in every possible way Except her very low bar of wanting a scholar. <laughs> Somebody who reads now and then. She's 17, all right. She's one of those people who, like, is on Tinder and thinks that there's nothing wrong with swiping right on someone who describes themselves as a sapiosexual. She's like, I'm into that because I really like smart people too because she's 17. It's like this what? guy's favourite book is Catcher in the Rye. He's a reader. Swipe. <laughs> I did some online dating and one of my questions like in the second round before you like start communicating privately is like, was how many books have you read in the last year? That really did determine the fate of many, many individuals. <laughs> but you know what? Adult she student. wants a reader. Everyone wants her as a breeder. It kind of. Oh. <laughs> uh, wow. All right. Moving on. On that note. But is this like, it's that John Waters quote of if you go home with somebody and they don't have books, don't fuck them. Like yeah. that's, that's where Edwina's at. That's where Adele, Adele is apparently at. Yeah. And that's why we should be all Edwina stands. She's got her priorities <laughs> right. Mr. Bagwell, she got him in the bag. Oh, Adele, you're on fire. I feel like at this point, the whole episode has kind of been a what the Featherington, but I just have one really quick one. If Anthony is so, like, why is Anthony so worried about procreating when he has three so younger split. brothers? Not like, not no. siblings, three younger brothers who could continue the line. He's convinced he's going to die. But why does it have to be his child as opposed to like he's got yeah, he's got Benedict, I'm gonna he's got Colin, he's got Gregory. Go on. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this question as an oldest child. <laughs> because he has a because he's the oldest. He has an overblown sense of responsibility. He's like, I would never put that responsibility on my younger brothers. It's my responsibility yeah. to manage. So I am the one who has to go around procreating because it wouldn't be fair to pass on my responsibility to anybody else. Like, yeah, I, I get that. And yeah, Anthony and I, we, we are, we are sympathetical with this regard. I would agree. I'm also an oldest and I would like your role in some respects is to be a buffer and shield to your siblings, whether you consciously think about it or not. It's, I think it's something just about birth order. 
Mm. Oh, see, and because I'm I'm the baby in my family, so I'm very much of the opinion of like, get over yourself. Anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest. I wanted to point it out. It's weird. Now it's time for what would Damry do? This is where we imagine that a character from another favorite book has written to the wise old dragon herself, Lady Danbury, to ask for advice. And we are aware she was very, she was barely in this book. So this letter comes from Sal from Mariana Zampada's Culty. Dear Lady Danbury, I've been blacklisted from the national soccer team and my new assistant coach is a non-verbal jerk face. How do I resist the need to punch him? I think Lady Danbury would probably suggest getting a cane and thumping him with that instead. Yeah, I'm not sure that Lady Danbury is going to resist the urge. She's going to, like, embrace it. Embrace that urge. Like, violence is often the answer. (laughs) Does Sal have the opportunity to have a loud conversation in the vicinity of the assistant coach in which they can just call the assistant coach This book is a really interesting one because it's quite divisive. It's called Colty, which is the last name of the assistant coach. Um, His name's Reiner Colty, and he's a a retired international soccer player from Germany who is very non-expressive and doesn't really talk very much and is is a dick face. So this is very in line with Anthony, except Anthony talks a shit ton. and it's a bit Simon Sal, plus Anthony. Yeah, probably. So Sal is a a really fantastic soccer player um, and grew up worshipping Colty until her brother and Colty came across each other in a soccer match, international soccer match, and Colty broke her brother's leg. And after that, she hated him. And then she ends up in a women's team being coached by him. So it is, he is both someone she's admired and also hates with everything in her being. Um, and um, also she's having a lot of like professional stuff going on as well. It's, it's a really great book, but it is divisive because it's really, really, really slow paced, which I loved. Yeah. But I- a lot of people do not want that in a romance book. I read another book by Mariana Zambada and, and yeah, like so slow, glacial yeah. slow pace. Was it the Wall of Winnipeg? Yes, it was. Oh, <laughs> Wall of Winnipeg and me. <laughs> yes. Um, so she's a Mexican-American writer and she writes these really like slow paced, long contemporary romance novels. I just, I love it because you really find yourself quite immersed in the interior lives and the family. And, and in the case of Sal, she's someone who works her butt off. She plays, um, she's, she's, (laughs) she's had issues trying to get on the the national soccer team, even though on a meritocracy level, she should be there because she had a drink with a, with a friend, uh, a teammate's husband. Anyway, moving on, but she works her butt off, but it also looks at the gender, equity issues of soccer playing, which was an issue this year when we saw the US women's team, because she has to have a part-time job just to get by. Whereas Colty, who's become an assistant coach, 
has all these, uh, got paid a crap ton, had a lot of sponsorships, had everything given to him on a, on a silver platter. And she's having to do a part-time landscaping job and works from sun up to sun down. And, and even when she is the best, she's still not getting the opportunities. So it's a really interesting look at like power hierarchies and um, gender. And um, I just love a non-verbal jerk face hero. <laughs> He makes Darcy look chatty. So like, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's great. I love it. That's all for this episode of what would Danbury do? We'll be back in a fortnight with an offer from a gentleman. In the meantime, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as at Bridgerton pod, or send us an email at bridgertonpod at gmail.com. This episode was recorded on the traditional and unceded lands of the Gadigal, Wurundjeri, and Boonwurrung people, and edited by our audio producer, Rudy Bremer, on Gadigal Country. Thanks for listening, and remember, WWDD. <laughs>